Welcome everyone to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose. I'm your host, Jose Palomino, and I'm the CEO of Value Prop, and we work with owners of B2B companies to figure out their best growth strategy to grow revenue, margin, EBITDA, and valuation. That's the key. And, and we try to, on this podcast, bring guests that add value to that thought and make it available as a resource. So we are very proud of the many guests that we've had on this show, the expertise they can share, the insights in about 20 minutes. And today's guest is no exception. In fact, I'd say proves the rule. Dr. Michael Solomon is a professor of marketing at St. Joseph's University, uh, right near where I live in Philadelphia. And he's been doing this a long time. He's published a lot of material books. In fact, the best-selling book on consumer behavior in the world. And uh, doc, so we're honored to have Dr. Solomon on our show. And we're going to talk about what's actually changed in consumer behavior in the last couple of years in light of COVID and even the trends that may have been happening before then. And even if you're purely in the B2B camp, uh, everything you do, everything you sell, if you're selling machines that go into somebody who's making cereal, you're impacted by consumer behavior. Just about everything will pay off in consumer decisions somewhere down the line from your product. So listen closely as Michael Solomon joins us today and shares a slice of his very deep wisdom today. Welcome, Michael, to Business Growth on Purpose. Hey, so thanks so much for having me. Absolutely, absolutely, Michael. And just uh, for our audience to get a little context, I know there's a lot of things that you touch on uh, in your career and so on, but what do you primarily focus on these days? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a, uh, in my day job, I'm a uh, professor of marketing uh, at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. And I've, I've been a, a business professor for, I hate to say, about 40 years. And so, of course, I, I do all that, all that stuff. But um, I also um, have worked with a lot of companies, uh, both B2B and B2C, to help them become more customer centric. So my background is uh, consumer psychology. Uh, I teach consumer behavior and write about consumer behavior and what changes in, in how people are buying and looking at products, et cetera. Um, and I'm also uh, an author. Uh, I've written the, the best-selling textbook on consumer behavior, I'm, I'm happy to say, uh, plus some trade books as well. Uh, and I do a lot of keynote speaking to audiences uh, about disruptions in consumer behavior. So there's a lot to talk about these days. Lots of, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm thrilled that you could be part of our show here, uh, Michael. So, so let me, let me jump in. We, you know, it's such a, it's a vast topic. We're not going to do it full justice, certainly in the time we have a lot of for, for, for this conversation here, but I think the big one that comes to mind, it, it may be a two-part question. I'll start with part A is, um, especially in the smaller to mid-market companies trying to, you know, come out of these last two years of COVID, three years going on, I guess, at this point. And, you know, the question is, what's changed in how people buy? And I don't mean B2B customers, I mean consumers, because ultimately, you know, whatever you do in industry, for the most part, it pays off somewhere and a consumer makes a consumer buying decision. That's what, you know, at the end of the day, all that oil refinery stuff comes down to what do people put in the tank of their car every day that's yeah. driving it. So kind of just curious, what's really changed? How has COVID changed people's, you know, uh, buying process, for lack of a better term? Well, have you got 
two or three days <laughs> to talk about the, the changes. Let, let me let's let's hit a, a few of the big ones. Well, first first of all, what I what I need to point out is you know everybody says COVID changed everything. Uh, the reality is that that COVID did not change everything. Um, what COVID mostly did. You know, uh, maybe it changed uh, the number of masks that we wear and so mm-hmm. on. But, but more fundamentally, what it did was to accelerate changes that were already starting mm-hmm. to happen. You know, so if you look at, for example, uh, the the demise of, of uh, bricks and mortar retailing that some people talk about, um, because everybody started to order online during COVID. Well, that was happening beforehand. We sure. were talking about the retail apocalypse and malls closing, et cetera. Uh, you know, you talk about uh, people's trust or mistrust of automation, let's say, in, in the channel. Well, people were starting to be a lot more accepting of, you know, dealing with a robot or a chatbot or something like that before COVID. So, again, not to minimize what's happened over the last few years, but uh, it just threw fuel on the fire. So, uh, the big changes that have been happening are continuing to happen. Um, obviously, there are big changes in the way we we obtain the merchandise. Um, but there are also really big changes in the way people look at that merchandise to begin with, look at those brands and think about those brands. And, and a lot of my work um, with companies and also on the academic side um, is, is helping them to understand that their brand is their biggest asset, obviously. Uh, there's a lot that goes under that umbrella, but there's there's a whole lot of subjectivity there. You know, it's uh, it's kind of a, you know the the classic uh, distinction that we make that unfortunately many of us seem to forget after we leave school, uh, and that is the difference between attributes and benefits. Mm-hmm. And and I, I see too many marketers still marketers still focusing on the attributes. You know, what are the cool features of my product? Uh, without thinking a lot about the benefits, what people are taking away from that from that product or from that service. Um, and those meanings are profound. You know, I've spent a lifetime studying the meanings we attach even to everyday products like blue jeans or something like that. There's a whole wealth of information that goes on there, you know. And so as, as I like to say, people don't buy products because of what they do. They buy them because of what they mean. And that meaning is something, and frankly, I know many of your listeners are in the B2B space. Uh, you know, that meaning is something that's important there as well. Because, sure. you know, as I think, you, you know, you you pointed out, you know, if, if nobody wants to buy that gas at the end of the day, I don't care how great your refinery is, you know, you're going to be sitting on a lot of uh, tanks of gas, right? Uh, and so the big changes that, that have occurred or are occurring um, have to do with the way that we learn about brands and obviously a lot of that is uh, is online now though though not all of it um, the way we relate to brands and and discover brands and and more importantly the way we use brands to express elements of of ourselves of our identities and so you never want to lose sight of the fact that your customer is buying your product because they have a problem you know and the problem can be very mundane like I'm out of milk but the problem is often more complex than that you know I I can't get anyone to go out with me or, you know, what college should I go to or something like that. And and in those cases, you know, there, there's a lot going on in that person's mind. And, and everybody, every, all of your listeners are customers, too. Right. That's the beauty sure. of this discipline. And we've all been there. We under we understand that, you know, that there are certain brands or certain products that 
that you have this really weird attachment to, very deep attachment. You know, maybe it was a sweatshirt you wore in college and you and your wife keeps wanting to throw it out, but you'll never throw it out. You know, <laughs> it could be something very personal like that, or or it could be, you know, any, any other thing, you know, the first car that you got or something. Um, but we are constantly consuming um, in a quest to express our identities and to share those identities with others. And, and one of the big changes, and believe it or not, I'm still answering your initial question. No, no, that's great. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm here, I'm wrapped. <laughs> one of, one of, the, you know, one of the, the biggest changes um, is, is how we uh, get that information and especially how we co-create with the producers. To, so today, and I've written a lot about this, I've written books about this, uh, one of the biggest changes that we see, and, and some people, I guess, call this Web 2.0. I think that doesn't quite capture it, but we're getting close because uh, in Web 1.0, it's very much a one-sided, uh, I was going to say conversation. It's not a conversation. It's right. a monologue. Back in the day, if you had a website, people would go to it and read what was on it, and they thought you were cool. Well, obviously, today, uh, the big story is the interactivity. So Web 2.0 is about the the receiver also becoming the communicator and engaging in a back and forth like you and I are doing now. And what that means is that uh, in many cases, um, some of the biggest uh, and most interesting campaigns or new products have to do with letting your customers in, letting them, giving them a peek under the kimono, so to speak, to be involved in literally creating the product or designing the product or promoting the product in, in some way. Uh, a lot of companies resist this, I think, especially on the B2B side, because, because they don't want to release something until it's absolutely perfect. Um, so a big change today, I think, is that a lot of product development is always in beta. You know, we can thank right. software people for that. Uh, you know, coding is always in beta and product design today is always in beta. So uh, again, there's, there's many examples of, of companies that have reached out to their customers and have recognized that their customers in some cases know as much or even more about what they make than they do. And by the way, that's even a more robust issue in the B2B side uh, where so-called lead users in different verticals are very, very influential. So uh, I, I read, for example, that in the chemical industry, they estimate that about 70% of the ideas for new chemical products are coming from the customers of the chemical manufacturers because they're out there in the trenches and they know that they're going to need a new product or it has to be tweaked or something before headquarters knows it. So I'd say the biggest change in the way that we consume is that we are now, uh, if, if we accept this, this, new, this new philosophy, and not everybody does, uh, but it, what I like to say is we're substituting one really tiny word for another. And that substitution is that we're no longer marketing to our customers, mm -hmm. we're marketing with our customers. I, I love that. And, and I, I uh, Michael, I can see, you know, you triggered a lot of things in, in my thinking, in, in, uh, in my practice, working mostly in B2B space. This is absolutely true. It's, it's like you need, you need customers to be engaged stakeholders early in the process uh, if, if for no other reason than the, the sheer cost of R&D of bringing a new product to market is, is overwhelming, forget the marketing part of it. I'm just saying designing and building something and getting it out. And, you know, supply chains are so complex. Every, you know, I don't, whether it's a little consumer product or 
a big one like a car or something like that to get it wrong. I mean, how did the like what was it the Aztec? How did that come to market? I mean, sometimes you see cars, you go like, how did that even make it out of the design? What were you know, they thinking? What were they like? I'm not a car engineer, and I know that's a horrible design. But you know, <laughs> sorry, apologies for any Aztec owners in, the, in our listening audience. But uh, but you know, you just there's a moment where you just wonder like, did they ask anybody? You know, and so on. And and in consumer, which moves much, it seems it moves much quicker. You, you have things and, and in the co-creation, I thought of something that just came to mind. This may not be what you meant, but I thought about in the early days how so much of Apple's brand, let's say with the iPhone, was the fact of the lines waiting for the next model. I mean, that became part of his brand, just showing the crowds, you know. And so people were very much part of supporting that. And to this day, I've run into people who still keep their original box for the first iPhone. You know, it's a dollar ninety nine box, but it still felt like a special part of the product. So, yeah. so you know, two and with okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, Mike. Go, go ahead. Well, that's but you know, you bring up Apple. That's an intriguing example because you're you're absolutely right. I mean, in terms of what we refer to as a brand community, kind of like a tribe of people who are loyal. Obviously, Apple loyalists are you know top of the heap there. Um, but ironically, Apple it, it, as a brand is the exception that proves the rule, because when you talk about companies that won't let you in to take a peek, they're mm. they're probably the worst offenders. And that's what, you know, we always have these leaks where some engineer left the prototype in a bar and, right, and, <laughs> and it becomes huge news. You know, it's the, it's the top headline of, of the day. Uh, so ironically, app, you know, Apple has succeeded. I mean, they've done other things right, you know, in terms mm. of focusing on design and fostering this sense of of community but in ironically in terms of co-creation of the of their actual products they're very uh they're they're very much going swimming against the tide i think and i guess apple can afford to do that but i i wouldn't i wouldn't recommend that to most companies to keep your customers so shut out of the design process that everything is top secret yeah i mean it helps if you have a you know once in a generation genius at the at the head of your firm yeah, right and so if you have one of those, you can do it too. You know, and I tell people that, especially when I, whenever I, I would do any coaching with like more entrepreneurial people, younger startups, and they try to, I said, don't model yourself after jobs because he was a unique talent who could pull it off. But for most people, that approach to how you work with people, how you work with the, with the market isn't going to work. Um, and, you know, certainly the, I think the dominant trend is, is this idea of co-creation, but that's hard to pull off. Like if you're a, um, a smaller company and uh, you know, you're not, you're not ideating 17 or 170 products to bring to market, but you know, it's a few things. When, when do you, you know, how do you corral that? So it's a realistic process for you. I'm just curious, what have you seen as some best practices for somebody let's say on the smaller side of the continuum of, of company size? Well, you know, it, it's funny. I, I, I often hear that, you know, I mean, small business owners feel like they're at a disadvantage because they can't compete with the big guys in so many ways. And yet they have so many advantages that sometimes they overlook. And, and one of those is that your smaller size can be an asset, right? Because you're able to pivot and, you know, it's with Apple, it's like turning an aircraft carrier, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but with a small business, you can make those changes and you are probably much more uh, hands-on with your best customers. You know, those people we were talking about earlier, you literally know who they are. They're not just a, you know, an entry in a spreadsheet or something. Uh, they're flesh and blood people that, that, you know, and, uh, 
or at least you can find them, you know, and, and, and so what I, what I sometimes tell uh, small business people is you have two amazing assets that, uh, that are sitting right in front of you that you're overlooking for the most part. One is your customers, your best customers, and two is your sales force or your employees uh, who often are obviously are interacting on the front lines, you know, uh, and yet so many companies don't go back to their 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 own employees. Uh, they certainly don't go back to their best customers and say, hey, you know, uh, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And, and you know, would you like to be involved in the, in the next iteration? Because, look, we're all, you know, we're all human. Uh, everybody likes to be asked for their advice. And if if you are if you give input into something that someone else makes, the odds are pretty good that you're going to pay attention to that at least. Doesn't mean you're going to buy it necessarily, but you're definitely going to pay attention because you say, yeah, you know, I had something to do with that. And that uh, that sense of ownership, uh, so we, uh, we call it the endowment effect, that sense of being connected to something is in that's just, you can't even put a dollar sign on that. It's so valuable. Now, Michael, you're talking about going beyond like your your mall survey taker. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a there's a place for that, but that is a mall intercept study is not going to get you there at, at all. I mean, you need to get down and dirty. You need to go uh as I like to say fish where the fish are. Um which often means by the way that um it's much more valid to go to the point where the product is being consumed rather than where it's being purchased because then you can really see uh, if people are using the product correctly, if there's a if there's something that can be tweaked, uh, we once did a a project with uh, with Black and Decker um, involving a household appliance, and we literally sent people uh, into housewives' homes. And you know we're not the only ones to do this, but right. uh, we sent people into housewife into housewives' homes to watch them. You know every step of the way, how they were using this product, and. Uh, we discovered that there was a fairly simple design change that would make the product incredibly easier to use. Uh, uh, they made the change and uh, then they became the market leader afterwards. Um, I, I'd like to think that we had something to do with that. But the point is that we didn't wait for the problems to be reported. We were a bit more proactive and actually went went to where, uh, where people are using the product, because especially with technical products, you know, some so much of it is is just misunderstandings. Uh, uh, yeah, I think it was Panasonic once did a great study. I may have the numbers wrong, but they looked at they looked at the people who uh, they they looked at returns of their you know DVD players and stuff like that. Um, people sent them back because they were defective, and they found that that something like sixty percent of those cases, uh, the product worked perfect perfectly well. The instructions were terrible and people couldn't follow them. So they thought it didn't work. You're only going to find that out, you know, fishing where the fish are. Sure, sure. Well, it's interesting. We, um, you know, we recently had to replace a, a refrigerator in our home. So we, we replaced, it's a major brand refrigerator. And it had, it had an idea of a back rail. So certain small things could be put in smaller receptacles so they wouldn't use up a whole shelf. It was a clever idea. And there's one rail that says for bottles. And I couldn't see, they didn't show an illustration of the bottle interacting with this hanging device. I literally took, it, it took me 20 minutes to figure out how a bottle would actually rest on this thing. Once I figured it out, I said, oh, obviously. But I could imagine the engineering team probably thought, 
only a dummy wouldn't figure this thing out. We don't we don't have to show a picture, uh, but, but a picture would have helped uh, in that situation. So, yeah, that, that's you know, when you get someone who who created the product to write the instructions, that's a really bad idea because okay. there's so much that they assume, you know, I I know this. Well, everybody knows this is obvious. You know, I don't want to insult your intelligence by telling you how to put a bottle in a refrigerator, <laughs> uh, but it's not so obvious to, to the rest of us. You know? Right. That's uh, kind of, you know, one of those things. Yeah. So, so let's just go back a little bit to the, the consumer world, right? Like it, you made a, you made a, at the, at the top of the, the interview, you, you pointed out it didn't change a uh, COVID did not change everything. Rather it accelerated things that were already happening. So how much of that is, well, certainly some of it is generational. So now you have digital natives who've only ever known you order things on Amazon or, or whatever, something like that. So are people, and I think I think of the travel industry, people have adapted to the fact that you have to self-serve everything. You order your tickets online, you order your hotel online, all of that. I'm of a generation that still remembers you would call a travel agent. They took care of it. You just tell them where you wanted to be and what time you wanted to arrive and somehow they figured it out. Do you think consumers broadly are just going to, is the trend that they're just going to continually accept greater and greater measures of self-service where like they're kind of on their own? And, and is that an opportunity for somebody who says, well, maybe that's a little too much on the island by yourself. You need some company. Yeah, great, great question. You know, I, I think that it's probably a market segmentation issue in that there are always going to be people who have the desire and the resources to get that kind of to get personalized service as opposed to self-service. Um, but you're going to have to pay a premium for that. You know, you're going to you're going to pay a premium. Uh, for example, if, if, if you have, say, a stylist at a place like Nordstrom or something, um, you know, uh, especially as people were starting to come back into the stores, you know, after the lockdown. Uh, what you saw is that they're starting to take appointments. You know, it's becoming more like appointment shopping where you can actually interact with a human and everything like that. Um, and there's time and money associated with that. You know, the rest of us are just going to order the stuff on, online. So to your point, I think there's tons of opportunities uh, uh, to provide actually personalized service today because I, I, you know, you've got two, you've got two forces that are working sometimes in tandem, but sometimes across purposes, and and that is automation and personalization, right? We want automated processes to make our lives, uh, you know, more convenient, but we also see a huge uh, desire, especially among younger customers, as you say, for personalization of the products and services that they buy. So, uh, I think there's always going to be opportunities. To fill, you know, places in the channel where where no one is organizing that that information right now. Who is filling that gap? It's these influencers, right? Mm -hmm. the influencer marketing that everybody's talking about. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how much longer that's gonna that's gonna continue, but right now, the the simple fact is there's just way too much information out there for any of us to process. Uh, you know, when I give talks, you know, I sometimes will say, how many messages do you think? that you uh, are exposed to commercial messages uh, in, a, in a given day. And people say uh, a few hundred, you know, and when I tell them, well, the answer is closer to four to 5,000 messages a day, they're shocked, but that's, that's the reality. Now we don't remember the, you know, the large majority sure. of those. And that's, that's the problem. We remember the stuff that is more, uh, more tailored to our, 
to who we are and, and whatever projects we're working on and our identities. That's what, that's what gets in. The rest of it's just going to go away. So whatever you can do to personalize, and, you know, we talk a lot today about curation, uh, you know, of, uh, home products or, or, or apparel and so on. And these curators often are these influencers. So what they're doing is they're editors who are taking, you know, I make, I'll make up the numbers. They're taking a thousand possible product options that are coming into the market and they're recommending 20 of those. So it's like a big filter that's happening which is why it's so important to understand if people in your channel uh, are, are in fact going to, to influencers, those people are the ones you need to talk to. The, the um, yeah, because it's also very, um, you know, we, we, the more, you know, again, more choice. It's also, we, we're like in a very stressful, we live stressful lives. Yeah. We're on calls all the time now uh, where uh, you know, maybe we're not traveling as much if we're working from home, but then that also means you could stack up appointments and end up, you know, people end their day after having 15 interactions and all, like you said, 5,000 marketing messages co coming at you from all sources, a lot of noise. We just live in a noisy time. And, and it was a movie. I think it was like 2005 with Tom Cruise, Minority, Minority Report, mm -hmm. right? And it wasn't that prescient. We're actually there, you know, maybe not quite tied to your eyeballs, but 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 pretty close. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pretty much all the technology that was in that movie um, was available at that time. You know, the, the problem, I mean, and, and certainly is now, uh, the problem is that customers aren't willing to accept it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, there's resistance <laughs> there, so that you didn't see in the movie. Uh, but yeah, the technology is there. So the big, the big challenge, as you know, I mean, you're a B2B expert, you know that the biggest challenge is not inventing some revolutionary product that's convincing people it's worth, you know, stopping what they're doing now and, and right. switching. Right. And that's, and that's where that brand story becomes so important. You know, the meaning of that brand and the backstory and, and what, what it's going to do to your life, how it's going to improve your life if you move from brand A to brand B. So the devil's in the details, but that's how that's what you need to do for sure. Wow. Well, Michael, we could com continue this conversation, as you said, if we had all day. Uh, but thank you so much for stopping by Business Growth on Purpose. Really appreciate it. And if somebody listening wanted to know more about you or your work, where should they go to learn something more? Uh, well, you're, you're welcome to come to my website, which is just michaelsolomon.com, 3-0 Solomon. Okay. Uh, I've got some free resources on there. I've got a, uh, a brand audit that you can download on the, on the first page that basically illustrates some of the different ways that brands can ramp up the level of involvement or engagement with customers. Uh, but right. there's lots of resources there, Just uh, or just drop me an email, michael at michaelsolomon.com or I'm on LinkedIn as well. Fantastic. Michael Solomon, thank you for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose. If you like the show, hit subscribe and leave us a review to help other people find the podcast. And if you're ready to take the next step in driving intentional growth for your business, come check out what we're doing at valueprop.com. We've developed industry-leading programs and systems to help B2B owners take control of their growth. Until then, thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose.